1: I'm glad to have you all with us for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We've got a very important conversation that we're going to uh, hold on the show today, and we'll uh, talk about that in just a minute. But uh, as we try to do every morning, we want to give you the latest figures about what's happening with uh, COVID-19 and coronavirus in the state of Georgia. Uh, We now, as of 6 o'clock this morning, which is a new time for release of figures from the Department of Public Health, uh, have uh, confirmed 15,409 cases of COVID-19 in the state. Um, unfortunately, we've had 579 people die. Um, we continue to have a preponderance of uh, the, uh, the the virus in the metro Atlanta area, although things down in Doherty County and uh, Albany uh, continue to be very troubling. They are uh, still dealing with the outbreak and uh, are adding up cases. They had 83 new cases in Doherty County just in the last, 20, 83 deaths, I'm sorry, in Doherty County now. Uh, and they're continuing to add cases of the disease despite their best efforts to fight it. Back um, one other figure I'll give you that I think it's a it's a very different figure, but it tells us something about what happens once we move beyond dealing with this virus and we're all getting back out into the world again. Georgia State University's fiscal researchers have determined that state and local governments in this in this state of Georgia may see as much as one point two seven billion dollars. Uh, in sales tax revenue losses from key sectors of the economy uh, this year because of the coronavirus shutdown and its aftermath. So there's a different kind of figure that tells you just how troubling this uh, virus is to all of us. Um, All right, let's get started. One of the most somber and compelling series of questions we can possibly ask as uh, the world deals with coronavirus is the ethics of how to deal with this disease. Um, In terms of where medical resources are deployed as probably the most uh, obvious example of that. Who gets ventilators, who doesn't? Who gets intensive care beds, who doesn't? But that's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the many issues that we uh, are looking at and that are being looked at by uh, bioethicists around the country. Our very special guest for the show today to talk about this is Dr. Paul Root-Wolpe. He is the director of the Center for Ethics of Emory University. He's the Asa griggs Candler Professor of Bioethics, the Raymond Shnazi Distinguished Research Chair in Jewish Bioethics. He's a professor in the Departments of Medicine, Pediatrics, and Sociology. Uh, He's also been the first bioethicist for NASA, where he's formulated policy on bioethical issues safeguarding research subjects there I, I give you a little fuller uh, uh introduction to his resume because we're very very honored to have dr wolpe join us today to talk about these issues also with this course is uh kevin riley the editor of the atlanta journal constitution who remains sequestered how are you kevin you holding up all right
2: I'm doing really well, Bill. It's always great to be here, and I've had a chance to talk to Dr. Uh, Wolpe before, and so I'm really looking forward to this. Um, I noticed my list of credentials are much shorter, and i'm 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 humbled by that. So
1: yeah, but you're the editor, you're the boss. You don't need much more than that. <laughs> uh, Kevin, you're the boss. <laughs> We're also joined by Jackie Cushman, who is a conservative columnist. Uh, and uh, you can read her at um, medium.com, where she posts her columns. I like to read her at jackiecushman.com, where she publishes columns with some regularity. She's also the author of her most recent book, Our Broken America, Why Both Sides Need to Stop Ranting and Start Listening. Jackie, people are used to hearing you on the show talk about politics, but one of the reasons I wanted you on today is something that I'm not sure... People who listen really know about you. You have been deeply involved in the community around you, the issues of the community in which you live, in the nonprofit world, and uh, it seems to me you have the kind of conscience that we wanted on this show. So thank you, Jackie, for being with us today as well.
0: Thank you, Bill, for having me on. And um, and you're right, I've been involved with you know GEARS, the Georgia Early Education Alliance for Ready Students, and we've wrestled with some issues that I'm sure will come up later on the show about how to provide child care to the people that are on the front line, uh, as well as our house, which is a homeless shelter for newborn um, babies and their families, and we've obviously been struggling there as well. So thank you for having me with this group today.
1: Sure. Dr. Wolpe, thank you for being here. Would you be okay, uh, since Riley and I kind of know you pretty well, can we call you Paul for the uh, for the duration of the Please. show today? Do you mind? Please. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Why don't we start? Give uh, Paul, give us a little sense of, I know you've been involved in helping resolve some of the big ethical concerns around coronavirus. In what context are you doing that? Just give us a brief look at how you are working with other bioethicists to uh, create standards and guidelines for mm-hmm. medical professionals and others to deal with during all this.
3: So there's both local and national answer to that. Regionally, uh, my center and my, especially my associate director, uh, Kathy Kinlaw, who's the chief clinical ethicist in the Emory system, have been helping the Emory system uh, write its policies and negotiate its way around a lot of the thorny ethical issues that this epidemic has brought. And that includes not only writing the policies, but also answering phone calls and getting on um, teleconference meetings to try to work through the daily, almost momentary, new kinds of challenges that come up when your uh, system is swamped with an, epi- with an infectious disease, when you've got healthcare workers getting sick, when you've got um, you know, challenges, not so much in our system, but nationally with protective equipment. So we've been serving as a consultant in that sense. Nationally, I happen this year to be the president of the Association of Bioethics Program Directors, which is for almost all the people in the United States. WHO RUN BIOETHICS PROGRAMS, AND THAT INCLUDES ALMOST ALL THE MAJOR CLINICAL ETHICISTS WHO WORK WITH HEALTH SYSTEMS AROUND THE COUNTRY. WE'VE BECOME A a SUPPORT GROUP, AND WE HAVE WEEKLY PHONE CALLS. WE'VE GATHERED TOGETHER POLICIES AROUND THE COUNTRY, AND WE'VE ANALYZED THEM. AND THIS COMING WEEK, TWO ARTICLES ARE COMING OUT uh, WRITTEN BY US collectively, AS WE'VE TRIED TO SAY WHAT ARE THE BEST PRACTICES AROUND THE COUNTRY, WHAT ARE THE THORNY ISSUES AROUND THE COUNTRY. Um, and then finally, I've been um, advising people nationally who are having particular issues. so we've been extremely involved um, since this outbreak arose and trying to make sure that health care is delivered equitably and fairly around the country. <laughs>
1: Um, and what, that's a really important part of the uh, uh, story we want to talk about today. Let me, if I may, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, is it fair, do you think, that that one of the biggest concerns that you're dealing with is the distribution of potentially life-saving medical equipment? Ventilators. Right. We know ventilators are in short supply. We hear uh, uh, doctors, hospitals, medical centers talk about how... how how they are worried that they're going to have to make difficult decisions about who gets a ventilator, who doesn't. Uh, How crucial is that to the standards you're trying to establish or the guidelines you're trying to establish today?
3: So interestingly, that was by far the most important issue at the beginning, and that's where we spend all of our time for the first uh, month or so, six weeks, and that is uh, what we call triage policy um how do you decide who gets what kind of scarce resource when hospitals and health systems have set up triage committees they've created policies and by the way there are hospital specific policies there are health system policies and then states have come out with policies new york particularly has a very elaborate policy and all of these have to be coordinated as well So the question was, if the system gets overwhelmed and ventilators are scarce, how do you decide who gets a ventilator if you've got more than one patient who needs one? Luckily, we haven't had that situation to – it's happened locally and discreetly, but we've done a good job of sheltering in place. We've done a good job of flattening the curve, as they say. And so we really haven't had a major problem with scarce ventilators, That being said, these are really important policies. We still could in certain places, and these policies are tougher than you think because uh, there's a lot of disagreement about certain kinds of standards around the country, um, both explicitly, what should we put in the policy, and implicitly, that is, how do certain kinds of policies that look like they're fair end up disadvantaging certain groups, uh, even though we don't mean to
1: and 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 what are some of the conclusions that you and your colleagues are reaching about that so for instance what i mean by that is there are those who say that you have to look at the age of the individual right. who might need a ventilator than an older person uh, nearing Uh, what might be the end of life within the next whatever number of years, um, that perhaps it has to do with just how critically ill a particular – how do you look at those kinds of very specific questions?
3: So the main standard that everyone agrees on is survivability. Um, So, for example, when critically ill people come in, what is the likelihood of the ventilator saving their life and giving them life years subsequent to their hospitalization? Uh, and there are, there are scores um, that are clinical measures. Uh, there's a SOFA score, which stands for sequential organ failure assessment, that looks at a whole series of um, difficulties a person is happen- having and then can compare them to others. So everyone agrees that, that clinical measures, objective clinical measures, are the first line. Um, and then you go on to other questions. Should age be an issue? Some uh, policies in the United States specifically – use age or more often, uh, at least for the ethicists, we like what we call life stage or life cycle standards. That is, it isn't so much a 64-year-old uh, should get it instead of a 65-year-old, but rather a 20-year-old who's only gone through childhood and adolescence and is a young adult should get it over a 60-year-old who has also had their um, most productive years and are entering their, their, their final stage of life or 70-year-old. So, those are standards that are accepted in some places and actually specifically uh, forbidden in other places. Healthcare workers have become a big issue. Should we privilege healthcare workers, all else being the same? Let me make it clear. This isn't the first thing you look at. If you have two people who are equally um, worthy of getting on the ventilator because of their health status, then you move to a secondary question. And some people say that we should privilege healthcare workers for three reasons. One, for what we call reciprocity, they're risking their lives on the front line. Second, because of the need to try to get them back into the hospital so that they can help save other lives. So there's a, a domino effect, helping them will help save others. And finally, as an encouragement, if we put healthcare workers at the end of the list, will they still show up for work? So there's this life cycle standard, there's a health care standard, um, certainly some places privilege pediatric patients above adult patients. So there are some secondary standards that we use, but the primary standards are health status standards.
1: You know, Kevin, uh, I think it's important that Paul started by saying that fortunately we have not seen many uh, places in the country, many examples where, we, where doctors are forced to make choices or nurses are forced to make choices about who gets a ventilator and who doesn't. But when you ask the question, Kevin, uh, we realize how chilling it is to think about having to make decisions potentially down the line. Kevin, I've lost you. Do we hear Kevin?
2: I'm back. I'm sorry about that. Um, there you go, hey, uh, Dr. Wolpe. This gives me a chance to ask you something um, that that I think probably a lot of uh, listeners uh, would love to know, which is how does this actually play out? I mean, um, I know that the, the the real hope is to have these guidelines and to for decisions not to be rushed and to be thoughtful, and that's that's a, a good situation, and I think that's generally what happens. But if I'm a doctor or a nurse or someone in an ER and, and we, we're overwhelmed. What do I do? Uh, How does that work?
3: That's a great question. So the whole purpose of this is to take that decision out of your hands if you're a doctor in the ER. That is to put in place a process where we don't make what we call bedside rationing decisions. A doctor has a fiduciary, a legal and a moral responsibility to do what's in the best interest for that patient that they're treating at that moment. We don't want them thinking about 20 other patients and what right they have to the same equipment. We take that, hopefully, if it works well, out of the doctor's hands, and we give it to a a triage committee or a group, usually a small group of physicians, nurses, sometimes ethicists, social workers and others. We say, we've got one ventilator, we've got these three patients, we need a decision on which patient gets it. And that way, we remove the conflict of interest from the doctor's hands. And that's what's happening all over the country right now. That being said, as you rightly point out, in the, in the sort of hustle of an emergency room, sometimes decisions are made that ha- not who gets a ventilator. That is almost always made collectively because it's a collective um, resource. But sometimes decisions are made, let's send this person up to a, a, a bed, let's release them, that actually have triage implications. And what we try to do is is, be, is have um, people who are sensitive to these kinds of questions, be the canary in the coal mine, watch these things, and if they see those kinds of dynamics happening, try to intervene and say we need to make this decision a little differently. Um, doctors, as you say, are overworked, they're stressed, um, and our goal here is to take a really difficult decision out of their hands that they really shouldn't be making at that moment.
1: Jackie, I want to bring you into the conversation and give you an opportunity to uh, ask a question of Dr. Wolpe.
0: Absolutely. I think this is a a fascinating discussion for two reasons. One, um, we've always dealt with it in different areas in different ways. And I'll give a, for instance, Dr. Wolpe, and then I'm going to hand it over to you. So, for instance, I have both an uncle and an aunt who both have an autoimmune disease um, and both needed um, lungs, I mean, you know, a transplant surgery. And so... One of them, they're both older than I am, obviously, but one of them made made the criteria so he was able to get the lung transplant. His sister, unfortunately, um, was a little older than he is and not quite as good of health, and she has not yet or has not been cleared um, to receive that that transplant. So I think, you know, it's one thing to, you know, we've always had these kind of dilemmas about how do we deal with things that are in a shortage situation, but then (laughs) I do think for the pandemic, one of the benefits we, we, we had is that we did have some warning so that, to your point, you could gather up some current practices and then kind of try to standardize them as opposed to all of a sudden, if it was a, you know, a, an immediate attack of a different sort, we would have had that opportunity.
3: Yeah, right. And that's right. Um, we have had a lot of time to think about this. And by the way, it's not just from COVID. Um, we have been working on pandemic flu Uh, for decades. Um, And we, as you may know, Emory University is right next to the CDC. So uh, we, as an ethics center, interact with the CDC quite a bit. Kathy Kinlaw, my associate director, was on their ethics committee when the pandemic flu policy was written. So we had already had policies in place. Many hospitals did, especially during the uh, H1N1 flu Epidemic policies were written there too. We didn't get uh, need to um, invoke them, but I, I think your point is really important, and that is this: despite the best policies, there still are objections. The disability rights community has been very vocal about the fact that people with pre and their rights, that people with pre-existing conditions uh, often get disadvantaged in some of these policies. That is, if you're looking at overall health status to decide who gets a ventilator and you come in with a significant pre-existing condition, someone else might be chosen instead of you, and they find that discriminatory against um, uh, people with disabilities. Uh, And there are some policies that specifically forbid uh, people with disabilities from being discriminated against. There are some policies that actually have exclusion. So some policies have criteria that kick you out uh, before you even begin. So if you have uh, advanced significant heart disease, you probably won't get a ventilator, things like that. Having one lung may be one of them. It depends on the policy. There are a few policies that, that mention significant mental illness or um, developmental disabilities. So we, we as a group, the BioSS, have been uh, vocal in trying to advocate that disabilities and, and pre-existing illnesses, unless they make a ventilator, Significantly unable to help you because of that uh, disability should not be used as a criteria. One last thing to say about this these policies kick in once you're in the hospital, once you're evaluated. There are lots of things in our country, lots of structural problems that make some people have greater access to hospitals, some people more likely to get to a hospital. There are issues of wealth and poverty here where. There are inequalities based on people's access and people's means to uh, gain access to good medical care. So the policies that we've been working on are after you get to the hospital, are evaluated, and are in line for a ventilator. But all along the way to getting there, there are also issues of, of who is privileged and who isn't to get into the system.
1: I'm really glad you said that, Paul, because uh, we devoted an entire show yesterday to talking about the um, fact right now that we're seeing that um, there's a disproportionate impact on African-American communities for getting coronavirus. Yeah. And, you know, Paul, as you, you know, the most dramatic examples of ethical questions surround a life-saving uh, device like a, uh, like a ventilator. But the fact of the matter is that there are ethics involved in how we think about communities, disadvantaged communities, not having the yeah. access to health care, to insurance. Uh, that's an important ethical part of all of this as well, Paul.
3: Absolutely. And not just the African-American community, though. It's very clear that they're disadvantaged. Native American communities, very rural communities, poor communities in Appalachia. And I could go on and on. There are many, many communities that are disadvantaged in that way. Uh, so, um, it, you know, These are the kinds of structural problems that we should be taking care of when we're not in the middle of a crisis. And then the second thing is our country has has always rationed care irrationally. Every other Western industrialized country rations care rationally. That is, they have a system where they decide ahead of time what kinds of resources they have, who should get them, and create policies for that. We are the only country that does not do that. The way we ration care is by not letting people have insurance. So those people don't get good care, and then people who are insured or wealthy do get good care, and then we pretend that we don't ration at all. But we're a deeply rationed society. We just don't do it in a rational way. We do it in a random way, and then that random way becomes chaos in an epidemic like this.
1: Yeah, we're really seeing that play out so very dramatically right now. Um, Kevin Riley, your reporters at the AJC and ours at Georgia Public Radio are tracking an ethical story in real time right now. Uh, Kevin, I'm referring to the case of the Georgia Tech researcher, uh, uh, Eva Lee, who is really cr- raising considerable ethical questions about whether she should be involved in research on the spread of coronavirus. Why don't you tell us a little bit about it, Kevin, and we'll see how Paul Wolpe reacts to it.
2: Yeah, it's a little bit uh, tricky to summarize, but what it comes down to is this. We have a brilliant researcher who is, was uh, apparently on the faculty at Georgia Tech who is now a convicted felon. Um, And it's a a little bit tricky and complicated, but apparently that felony involves uh, misrepresenting um, some information on the application for a grant to do research. So currently, she is not allowed to use Georgia Tech's research facilities and computers and those resources. Meanwhile, she's thought of as one of the most brilliant researchers in a situation like this. So here we have Dr. Wolpe. Let's... um, Let's see if he can tell us what the right thing to do would be. Of course, it's not an easy decision, but what factors what factors come into this, Dr. Wolpe, from the perspective that you bring?
3: So, uh, in full disclosure, I don't know about this particular case, unfortunately, but uh, I was one of the people that wrote the book, helped write the book for the National Academies of Science uh, on what is scientific misconduct and um, what is uh, some uh, Falsification, plagiarism, um, and uh, fabrication of scientific research and what kinds of uh, bad conduct in science should get you kicked out of uh, scientific community. And uh, this is the book that's basically the main books used all over the world to define that. Misrepresenting yourself is a, is a big no-no, and it's a, a bad thing because um, – The resources in science are scarce, and to have people misuse them because they falsified their credentials is a significant problem. In most cases, you don't end up with a story like this. The person who has done that ends up being a brilliant researcher. You end up with the person having done that, having um, falsified their way into a position of of responsibility. That ends up um, uh, creating science that is questionable. So uh, we have to be vigilant about those things, and it's it's a shame when someone does that and then ends up really having something to contribute. But I don't want to second guess the story without knowing all of the details. Um,
1: so I'll leave it there. But you know, Jackie, it's it's a fascinating story. Um, uh, or Kevin, did you want to respond to that before we move on to Jackie?
2: I guess just to follow up, and I certainly understand, Doctor Wolpie that you don't—I mean, you don't really want to put yourself in a position of of, of offering an opinion on something you're not familiar with, and uh, I think that's that's wise. But what about this idea that uh, it almost, in some ways, it seems like the script of like a sci-fi movie where we have a troubled superhero who is, yeah. is you know, somehow been banished, but is now called <laughs> to the service of humanity. You know, and I don't want to make light of it, but At what point is the line crossed where, gosh, if someone could save many, many lives, maybe we can look past their egregious mistake?
3: Right. So it depends what the mistake is. Um, Given that this was a false, if I understand it correctly, and again, I have unfortunately not read this story because I've been so preoccupied with, with other things that I've been doing. But if it is just a credential falsification, that is, all of her work has been flawless, all of her scientific results aren't questioned, um, then there are ways to punish without ejecting her from the scientific community. And perhaps, again, I don't know the specific details, this might have been a case where um, other kinds of um, punishments might be appropriate and, and then might bring her back supervised into the science community. So that is, that is a possibility. But I want to emphasize that the scientific community polices itself. Uh, there, there aren't external watchdogs looking over science. And, if we, and, and it's like the police or other groups that need the public trust in order to function well. We already see what's happening in our society when certain subgroups don't trust what science is trying to tell them. That's part of the reason that we have this coronavirus outbreak in certain places. So if we can't keep science at a high level of integrity, then we've lost the public trust. So I do fully understand why the scientific community comes down hard on people that engage in those kinds of activities. It's important for the integrity of science as an enterprise.
1: Jackie, I want to f- uh, follow up on that just a second with you. Paul Wolpe is clearly the expert on these ethical issues, but we all have a, a, you know, opinions about this sort of thing. So Evely uh, apparently she she was found guilty of falsifying a certificate uh, as she applied for a $40,000 grant from the National Science Foundation. She was convicted of, the, of that, and she is awaiting uh, 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 her punishment on that. I'm not quite sure what that's going to be. So, But here's the larger question that any of us has a right to think about, Jackie. Um, if, if we have someone like an Eva Lee, she was the first one to notify – federal public health officials, that uh, non-symptomatic individuals could, in fact, pass on the virus. And there's an email exchange between her and some of the Washington public health folks in which they say to her, my goodness, this is a game changer for us. So, Jackie, how do you read this? I mean, do you say someone like that for the time that we've got to get them enlisted in this fight?
0: Well, I think I'm going to fall back a little bit on what Dr. Whoopi said, which is, You know, clearly in the sign-up community, your reputation is is everything, quite frankly, because there is so much trust among them. Having said that, I think it would make sense to have her in some way come back into the fold in terms of the research, et cetera, but do that either with a partner or a supervisor or someone that she could team with so that there's, you know, someone else that's part of that process with her. And I think, you know, unfortunately— Um, that's that's true. I think anywhere where you have you know you know falsifying um, so I think you a certificate for a grant. Um, my guess is she knew that she did that and knew that wasn't right. And so I think there is cause to have either a, you know someone to team up with her or a supervisor or some way to have a team approach to this um, as opposed to a single individual.
1: So I I kind of let that conversation play out a bit for one reason. Uh, it shows us just how thorny. These ethical issues really are to deal with, and Paul is dealing with them every single day. So let's do this. Uh, Let's get our first break of the show out of the way. We have a lot more to talk about with Kevin Riley, with Jackie Cushman, and Dr. Paul Root Wolpe. We'll be right back.
3: Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today.
1: a uh, quick program note as we continue with the show today uh tomorrow on political rewind we're going to return to our our roots which of course are in talking about politics we've been spending uh, what we think is a uh, an important amount of our time talking about stories around the uh, virus uh, but we also believe that politics is still happening out there there's still a 2020 election and so tomorrow Uh, We will uh, have a panel that will discuss what's going on in the 2020 election cycle, among other political stories. And you know what? You can't avoid talking about the coronavirus when you're talking about politics these days. So I'm sure that will come into play as well. Um, Kevin Riley, Jackie Cushman and Dr. Paul Root Wolpe, who, among other things, is the director of the Center for Ethics at Emory University on the show today. Uh, Paul Wolpe, uh, here's a question. There is such a rush to find a vaccine for coronavirus, that there have been concerns raised by some people that in rushing forward, we're not following the usual safeguards, which would usually call for animal testing to at least begin to assure the safety of a drug, and that we're going right into human testing. What are the ethical implications around that? So
3: we've developed a system Um, in the wake of a number of really horrific scandals in the middle of the 20th century, particularly from uh, the human experiments done in World War II all the way through really terrible experiments being done here in the United States uh, where we infected orphans, where we experimented on prisoners. We set up a system to make sure that, first of all, uh, research is done ethically, and second of all, that it's done in a systematic way that makes sure that it doesn't harm people before we use it therapeutically. And that's perfectly a good system, though. It does slow things down a lot. But that's why, for example, we didn't have the thalidomide tragedy in the United States that they had in Europe because of that system. That being said, um, when you have an emergency like this and, and hundreds or thousands of lives are at stake, Um, There are ethical justifications for speeding up that system to the degree possible while still um, keeping it as safe as possible. So, yes, creating a vaccine in 18 months or even 12 months instead of three to four years does cut out certain kinds of um, testing. If this were a brand new drug, I think that would be much more difficult. But we've been making vaccines for decades and decades. We know how to make vaccines. We've got processes for making vaccines. So some of the testing can be um, ethically and safely skipped because this process of making this vaccine isn't a brand-new process that we have to test. It's a tried-and-true process. It's just the product primarily that we need to be careful about. So... um, The people who oversee this, the FDA and the scientists who oversee this, despite what some people might think, are extraordinarily sensitive to this question. Because remember, if they create a vaccine that ends up harming people, then they end up with their reputations ruined, they end up with um, monetary losses, and they end up with the guilt of having harmed so many people. So they are extremely careful about this. And I think we can trust this system for the most part while we still need to make sure that there's there's the proper oversight and that it's done in as careful a manner. But if it ends up saving lives to the degree that it might if we can get a vaccine, especially considering now that we're talking about waves of COVID, not just a single incident, then I think uh, some of those shortcuts are justified.
2: Hey, uh, Dr. Wolpe, a question here from uh, me, uh, Kevin Riley. It's something along those same lines that's a little bit more immediate and has sort of uh, got politics uh, and ethics caught up in it is this question around, I, I can never be sure I can say this drug the right way, but hydroxychloroquine, and right. its its it's promotion by the president and it's promotion by Congressman Collins and then people on the other side. Um, but from a, we, we, we know what the politics is, and, and I think we understand what's going on. But from a purely ethics, you know, medical ethics point of view, what, what, what should people be thinking about when it comes to that drug?
3: They should be thinking about not taking it. That's what they should be thinking about uh, in relation to that drug. There's no good evidence that it's actually effective. Um, And to promote a drug that has no good scientific evidence that's effective is fundamentally unethical in my view. We have a system here for a reason. A drug like that can be tested relatively quickly. And for people to advocate a drug based on rumor, and that's all it was. It was rumor, anecdote, possibility um, is the way that people end up taking dangerous drugs, and there have been people who've lost their lives because of taking this drug inappropriately. Um, so I, you know, I understand the desperation, and there's a whole other story to be talked about here about the messaging around this disease and how um, the the media and public spokesmen and political bodies and others um, have message around this disease, and, and so both uh, panic and other things at times, um, but yeah, I think that it is a mistake.
1: Jackie, jump in.
0: Now, I was going to say, I was going to say, um, it also makes me think about not only our current um, pandemic and where we are, but also i thinking about the future and how does this change us um, as, as a people, as, as a nation. And I, I hope that one of the things that this does for us is for us to rethink a couple of things we mentioned earlier in the in the in the show. One is you know the underlying health of the current right citizens and the disparities that, are, that might necessarily be there currently and how do we bring all groups up to better health currently and whether that's access to, and I'm going to give you, for instance, I'm on the, the Trust for Public Land, uh, which is a nonprofit that, that works for land for people, but that's providing more access to land for people for exercise and sunlight, et cetera. But one of the things we do know about this is that if your immune system is healthy, so you have no underlying conditions, you are less likely to get it, and you are less likely to have serious, um, you know, consequences. So I think one of the things we want to think about is not only what do we do in the worst situation in terms of ventilators, but what can we do to make sure that before we get there, the fewest number of people are are susceptible to this in the first place.
3: And that brings us to how this was handled. Um, you know, uh, South Korea and the United States had the first – COVID-identified patient on the same day, January 20th. Uh, South Korea immediately engaged in massive countrywide, especially in the hotspots, testing. And by March 30th, South Korea tested 400,000 citizens, identified those at risk, and and isolated them and did not have a full lockdown. By March 30th, when South Korea had done 400,000 tests, we had done 40,000 tests. And we had to lock down every citizen in the United States. So there are a lot of lessons to be learned from this. Um, and one is to take these things seriously. I mean, we had lost the understanding, despite all the efforts of public health officials, that we are susceptible to epidemics. Mm-hmm. And we tended to under undervalue them and misunderstand them. In the 2017-2018 flu uh, epidemic here in the United States, two years ago, 60 thousand Americans died. That's already far more than it died from COVID, yet only a third of Americans got vaccinated against it. We have this sort of, if we close our eyes, it'll go away attitude because we think epidemics are a thing of the past, and they're not. And hopefully, if anything good comes out of the COVID-19, it will be to remind us that we are susceptible to epidemics, that we have to, as soon as they raise their head, we have to begin to uh, accommodate them, and the earlier that we intervene and that we get serious about these things uh the better the outcomes will be, even if that means occasionally that we misjudged in a, a disease and it didn't come here as seriously as we thought it would. It's better to be safe than to end up closing down the whole economy the way we've had to uh with covid nineteen
0: and and dr willby just um because yep. sure just, just just um interesting about actually in Korea. In the beginning of February, right as this was right um, coming becoming visible on the, the the global global scene, and it was interesting as soon as it happened. To your point, in Korea, immediately they began temperature checking as you begin your way into a hotel, along with a computer with heat mapping to make sure you didn't have a temperature. And people were wearing were very visibly wearing masks, and there was hand sanitizer everywhere. So to your point, their experience early, you know, years ago. Um, you know, have prepared them for this. And I do think you're right that we will see a very different level of preparedness going forward.
1: Yeah. Kevin, we're going to have to get to a break, but if you have one last comment or question, why don't we give you one chance at that uh, kind of quickly?
2: Uh, A quick question, because you you mentioned it, Dr. Wolpe. um, Comparing this to a typical season of the flu, that's been a very common um, thing that's been out there. And um, it, it seems to say, well, just as many people are going to die from this or even fewer than a a typical flu epidemic, what's the big worry? So from a medical ethicist's point of view, your response.
3: Well, I'm not a clinician and I'm not a public health expert, but I will say this. Um, COVID-19 is different than the flu. First of all, it attacks a different population. Uh, the flu tends to be very dangerous to people with strong immune system, systems. In the great 1918 epidemic, more soldiers died of the flu than died of um, the war itself on the front lines because the flu often takes young people. While this COVID seems, t- and, and the flu takes children as well, while this COVID disease seems to uh, primarily. Um, and loss of life or, or make more susceptible. Older people, younger people tend to have a better disease course. So it's a different than the flu. The second thing is we have no idea what the death toll of COVID would be if we did not shelter in place and do so many things that we've been doing to try to stop its spread. Um, at the beginning, the uh, uh, health professionals were predicting 100 to 200,000 deaths uh, were possible from COVID-19. A lot of people are now saying, well, look, we've gotten nowhere near that. I've forgotten it. One of the reasons we might have gotten nowhere near that is because we've been sheltering in place for almost a month. many of us. So when you're, this is a paradox of the problem. When your mitigation uh, activities work and the disease isn't as bad as people feared, then everyone says, you see, it wasn't that bad. We didn't need to do it. When, in fact, that's exactly the opposite of what happened. We did it, and that's why the disease didn't spread.
1: Let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way. And then I'd love to come back and address what I, I think, uh, Dr. Wolpe, is a significant question to look at. Uh, and it's really twofold. Number one, the ethics of, uh, of when to reopen the economy and what to, th- what to make of the fact that there are some people out there suggesting that having some people die of the virus Uh, When you reopen, the economy is okay as long as you're getting business back on track again. But we should also talk about people who are out in the workforce right now. We'll do that when we return from this break. Dr. Wolpe, I think one of the biggest ethical questions, and for that matter, one of the biggest political questions that uh, the country is facing right now is the push by some to start reopening businesses even as the virus continues to spread? Um, there's an outlier in all of this. I honestly, I don't believe he represents the thinking of conservatives out there. But there, are, uh, Representative Trey Hollingsworth of Indiana, Congressman Hollingsworth, did tell a local radio station in Indianapolis that he thinks it's preferable to reopen the economy, even though there, there might be a new wave of coronavirus deaths. His quote is, it's policymakers' decision to put on our big boy and big girl pants and say it's the lesser of these two evils, uh, uh, getting people back to work, even if it means more deaths. You know, that's an extreme position. But I assume it's fair to say this is an enormous ethical question. Yeah. So we there's an
3: interesting what we might think of is psychological, ethical problem here. What, how do we balance in an ethical way um, a current harm against a potential future harm? It's something that ethicists have talked about for centuries. So, um, and, and in some ways, um, it's a difficult one. So you have a patient in front of you that you can save, but if you let him die, you can take his organs and save five other people. So do you let the patient die? And, of course, almost all ethicists, all ethicists, I hope, say, no, you don't let this patient die just because you could use his organs for other people. That's immoral because you have a responsibility to that individual. So the question of immediate harms versus potential future harms is a long-standing ethical problem. And here we're seeing it again. We have to protect current lives. But everyone does understand that it, uh, this economy and what's happening to it already will cause lives in the future. There are people who are going to die um, because of the collapse of our economy to the degree this collapse and loss of jobs and other things and their inability to get good nutrition perhaps or their inability to access health care that would not have died in a robust economy where they had jobs, for example. Um, all that being said, it is our responsibility to the degree possible to protect lives right in front of us and right now um, that are at risk. That being said, we have to find a way to balance those two things like they did in Korea. And if this had been handled properly and if we could get tests out, I mean, testing right now is a really big issue to identify areas of concern, then we can move forward and open the economy sooner. So I think that the advocacy of our politicians right now should be around how do we best get testing developed? How do we best distribute it? How do we get it to the places where it is most needed rather than suggesting that we open up the economy, the economy in advance of, of um, a proper social program around controlling COVID-19?
1: You know, and Jackie, you raised a corollary issue at the very top of the show, which has to do with people who, uh, f- for better or worse, are out there working right now, um, and, and and we are patronizing their services, whether it's grocery store uh, clerks or the like, and you talk about it in terms of how we're dealing with people in daycare situations where, where people rely on them for... Uh, child care. I mean, we also have ethical issues around uh, the people who are working right now.
0: Absolutely. And I think it's, um, I think Dr. Wilbur was right. It's always a trade-off. It's always a balance. How do you balance these things correctly? And I think the, the, the real answer is it's it's going to be, um, it, it's not going to be a on, full on or full off, but how do we think about it in ways? How do we think about it in trials? And how do we think about it doing it in such a way where we're making sure that people are still, you know, when you do go back out in a limited way that you're still washing your hands and socially distancing as much, I mean, physically distancing as much as possible, et cetera, so that you limit that ability to transfer transfer um, the virus.
2: And, and I think that, that Jackie really, really does make a great point there, which is it's about, and I'd like to know what Dr. Wolpe thinks about this. I mean, it's about having standards for that activity not a date. In other words, uh, to say, well, we can ask people to go back to work when we can assure them of these things, or we can handle this sort of situation. Not like, well, we're picking a date and come hell or high water, we're going to get back to work, right?
3: This is going to be, our economy is going to be phased in. And while we're phasing it in, we're going to carefully watch what's happening with COVID cases. So as we begin to open up economy, watch the spread of COVID, and see if it begins to spike and where and why. So you're right. There isn't going to be a moment. There isn't going to be an on-off switch. It's going to be a phasing in over the next year um, or so, or as long as it takes to get an effective vaccine. But even right now, I'm very concerned about the people who need to work right now, and we are not doing enough to protect them. For example, many of the people who need to work now need to take public transportation, We should be tripling the number of buses. We should be, you know, quadrupling the number of trains, whatever we can do, because people are being packed into buses right now to go to their um, essential jobs all over the country because they have no other way to get there. And we are putting them at risk in those situations that are exactly opposite of what has been recommended, that is through physical distancing, which we can't do on crowded buses. So there are ways right now to help mitigate the spread of the people who are working. If those kinds of, and that's just one example, but if those kinds of standards aren't in place when we begin to open up the economy, we're going to begin to see just more and more of those hot spots grow as more and more people need to get to work on public transportation and our crowded buses and crowded trains become incubators for COVID.
1: I've got to jump in because we're really running out of time uh, for today's show. I'm really glad you uh, take us to the conclusion with those comments, Paul, about what we do with people who are out in the workforce right now. They're a big concern. They are incredibly valuable to us because they're performing services that we continue to need. And the fact that we need to take better care of them makes so much sense That's it. We are really out of time. Dr. Paul Root-Wolpe, thank you so much for being part of the show today. Uh, Jackie Cushman, love having you back with us. Kevin Riley, you as well. And I'm going to see you, Kevin, again on the show a week from now. But in the meantime, we'll be back here tomorrow with another edition of Political Rewind. And as I said earlier, we're going to focus a bit on campaign 2020 in the midst of the coronavirus. I'm Bill Nygut. Thanks for being with us. See you tomorrow.